Welcome to the Rapid Change Matters podcast. My name is Howard Cooper, and for over 14 years now, I've been fascinated with helping people to create personal change quickly. But I still come across many who believe that lasting personal change has to take a long time, consisting of reliving traumas or deep psychological analysis, or simply that flawed notion that understanding why you have a problem will somehow make it go away. I'm on a mission to get people who work therapeutically with others to shift their thinking and realize that these beliefs are not written in stone. Rapid change can happen. So, to help you open up to what's possible, I'm interviewing top therapists and agents of change who are out there getting real results with real people really quickly. Before we get to the interview, I just wanted to let you know that I've written a quick-to-read, downloadable PDF on five strategies to amplify your client's response, with some great tips on getting your therapeutic suggestions to really sizzle. You can download this for free from rapidchange.works, where you can also find all the information about this episode and episodes still to come. Now, over to the interview. We are very fortunate today to be joined by Anthony Jacquin. Not only is he the author of the seminal book, Reality is Plastic, The Art of Impromptu Hypnosis, but with over 5,000 sessions of brief therapy to draw upon, today promises to offer us many insights into the practicalities and challenges involved with facilitating change. He's the director of the UK Hypnotherapy Training College, and outside the therapy rooms is known by many as a pioneer in cutting-edge impromptu street hypnosis. Welcome, Anthony. Thanks for that warm intro. Welcome, Howard. Now, listen, jumping straight into this, tell us a little bit about you, what you do, and how did you get started? Okay, um, the initial inspiration, still a big inspiration for me, was my father, Freddie Jackwin. He always had an interest in self-development, that kind of stuff, read those kind of books, uh, you know, ran his own businesses, and... Back in 1995, I did a hypnosis, or hypnotherapy course. It was very much hypnoanalysis kind of stuff at the time, a world away from what we do now. I was at university. He introduced me to what he knew, told me he felt like he was wearing an invisible cloak and that I should get one. And I'm lucky enough that between sort of hypnotherapy training and performance training and just the clients I see, that, you know, I travel around the world teaching people how to do hypnosis and uh, showing people how they can change their life, you know, be happier, that kind of thing. So it's very satisfying. But my time is kind of split between doing therapy, teaching people how to do hypnosis and performance as well. So are there, are there misconceptions that, that you come across that people have about the therapeutic process? And if so, I mean, do you have any thoughts around, you know, re-educating them about what's possible or, I mean, what's your experience with this kind of stuff? Yes, some people have an expectation that therapy will involve counselling of some descript or will involve a large kind of history take or offering. Um, some people are expecting perhaps you to perform some kind of analysis and understand and have that kind of expertise and offer direction. For some reason, despite contemporary hypnotherapists sort of distaste with some of the ideas about regression and repression, um, 
amongst the public, they're very common ideas and that seem quite tied up with hypnosis. Mm-hmm. Um, again, less and less hypnotherapists do that kind of thing. Many still do. But um, even if people are kind of familiar you know, with, with some of the tools that, that you might use, NLP or terms like brief therapy, I find there's, there's, at that point there's often a bit of a kind of void or, or, or a, a blurring uh, perhaps of what that might entail. They'll, they'll often say, is it that kind of NLP stuff? I did a, mm-hmm. a course on it at work once. <laughs> and, and, and I guess they're kind of thinking about, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's just that I think they're thinking about clever language. Um, and, and I don't know. It, it's, there are many misconceptions. I try to just blast through them and tell people what I do. Okay. So, so they come and see um, you. And what would you be saying to them about what you do? Well, a good question came up at our hypnotism conference. I know you've interviewed Michael Perez, and he gave a lovely answer, which is kind of related to this. Um, when people said, you know, will it work for me? And he said, well, you know, sometimes I seem to be able to help people when nothing else is helping them. And sometimes that change or that, or that help is immediate. It, we get results very quickly. Sometimes there's a bit more work to do. We both need to kind of dig in and do a bit more. And sometimes we get nowhere at all. But we know that very quickly. We know, you know, your expectation should be that you're going to benefit from the first session you have with me. If there's more work to do, then we'll know that. Mm-hmm. So in terms of just just positioning the interaction I kind of position it as being brief and I might say typically I see my clients for between one and three sessions you know I've had over 5,000 clients for a wide variety of problems from every kind of common habit and fear and anxiety right through to real specific you know things Um, typically I see my clients between one and three sessions and often you know, depending, let's take a smoking habit, very often that seems to be done and dealt with in a single session. Mm-hmm. Sometimes more work to do. If someone comes for a longer-term goal, you know, perhaps weight control, getting the body they want, some physical goal or something, then we set out a course of action. But again, the the, the actual contact time and therapy is pretty light compared to, to many other styles. So I, that's how I kind of put it to my clients. Sure. Well, I mean, first of all, that that aligns very nicely with some of the stuff that I I very much believe strongly about. Um, I've come across a number of therapists. I know we've spoken before briefly about this, who you know will say, "Oh yes, you want to stop smoking? We have the you know 15 session approach." And to mm-hmm. me, I think I, it, it's difficult to know how long it's going to be before you see the person. Yeah, I mean. I can understand it if someone's been trained in a particular approach and there are some schools of hypnotherapy that do that. Um, I hope it's not just for commercial purposes. But their approach is four sessions or six sessions. And um, in fact, when my father first trained, (laughs) even more amusingly, whatever you saw the client for was a 12-session approach. And the 12th session was the last session. Mm-hmm. Um, as if there was some secret being perhaps held for that 12th session. And the therapist would push the button, if you like, on the relationship yep. in that 12th session. That's just not how I work. 
Mm. I, I, if someone has a protocol that they must follow, and again, there are people I respect in the industry that have protocols. Uh, some of the kind of hypnobirth, natal hypnotherapy people I know have a set protocol that makes it easier for, say, a nurse, a midwife they've taught the protocol to, to deliver it without needing all the flexibility of years of hypnotherapy knowledge. So in that sense, just for the sake of thoroughness, I think it can have some value, but it's just not how I work. Not, not in, a, in, in, in a sense that I'm sort of in the blocks looking for, to, to race you know, and do this in 30 minutes rather than 60. But sometimes I only get the opportunity to see people once. It's just the way it is. And I know that for many people, one session can, can, if not get them all the way where they want to be, it can show that it can give them enough space to kind of observe that change has occurred. And that can then encourage them and kind of fortify them to to dig in and do the extra bit of work. So, you know, it, it, it really varies, I guess. But... Most of the work I do, the interaction's pretty short and the client hmm. has the expectation that, that, that that's what it's going to take. And, and presumably you have an expectation that you can help them and that they can respond rapidly. That's my belief. I, I, I actually believe we're, we're very, very close almost to being free of a problem, even when we're completely embroiled in it, even when it's got been running consistently for 20 years even if it's 80 cigarettes a day, none of these things have ever seemed more entrenched or more uh, static or more complex than five cigarettes at the weekend or I've had a phobia since a turbulent flight last week or, or, or whatever. To me, it's exactly the same problem. I don't really give any credit to um, a problem's you know, status or... or longevity or anything like that mm -hmm. which i think for for many people uh, certainly if they have problems or are thinking about therapy that's a quite a different approach because i know a lot of people who will say well hang on a second i mean i see people who say to me howard you know are you going to be able to help me how can you possibly help me in a short space of time i've had this problem for 50 years and you've been doing the same thing for 50 years mm. you know how long did it take you to learn this problem you know let's face it most fears we're going to frame as it, it, it took less than a second <laughs> You know, so I, I, if if I get that kind of response, I, say, I understand that. But you know, e even though something can kind of be getting in the way of your life and shaping your decisions, and seemingly the choices you have available to you at any given moment, the structure of that thing, the problem itself, has actually gone unexamined for fifty years. Or if it's been examined, then yep. you know it hasn't been operated on, <laughs> and that's what we're going to do. So I just try to pull people back into a better metaphor if you like yeah you know their their beliefs are they experts in therapy are they experts in psychology do they know that problems that have been experienced for 50 years are more difficult than problems that have experienced for five years they don't know because it's not true so i understand where they're coming from but again i don't, I don't want to get too sidetracked but i just try to keep our eyes on the road mm -hmm. as it were and when I feel, you know, those kind of, you could call them objections or just questions, when I feel I'm kind of being pushed off track, I'll pull it back on track and I'll have, you know, any number of anecdotal case studies, even if some of them are a kind of composite of clients that I've seen, a kind of, you know, very liberal, my friend John kind of technique. Um, I still feel like I'm speaking the truth when I say, you know, you don't need to live with that 
problem. Or when we've done this work, you'll no longer be able to feel that. Or when you walk out of the door this evening, you'll be a non-smoker. You know, how bold do you want to be in setting this person's expectations? Perhaps there is something in the complete, the, the slightly more honest answer of sometimes I can help people, it's miraculous, it's like that takes minutes. Sometimes it takes more time. Sometimes I can't help at all. That's why I, I like those words from Michael Perez, because I, I've always kind of erred toward, at least within that first session, toward we're going to do this. Just like if we were setting off, you know, for base camp one of Everest and we, we, we got ourselves in shape and got the appropriate kit. And one of us was sort of fussing about, are we going to do it? We're going to do it. You know, we may not get our time or be the fastest up there. We're going to do this. Occasionally, people fail to do it. Big deal. Mm-hmm. Does that make does does that does that make us dishonest? Not dishonest enough <laughs> that I'm going to um, stop. Uh, you know, at least ha- I like to kind of think of it as pegs in the ground within the session. Very yeah. early on yeah. in the session, I look at the client and make a statement like like that. When we've done this work, you know, you're going to have a lifestyle that completely supports being a size twelve. When we've done this work, you're going to be free of those feelings that will be fantastic will it not you know i get a lot of this stuff from my dad who is even more unconditional in in these statements it's going to be done it's going to happen does everyone in the room leave a group quit smoking session and never smoke again no but does everyone in the room have the possibility of that happening yes i believe they do so i think that's important and it keeps brief therapy on track because again not that we're up against a stopwatch but Depending on where you look, you know, in CBT, there's plenty of good evidence for 20 sessions might seem brief. For some hypnotherapists, 12 sessions seems like an eternity and a, and a kind of some kind of manipulation of the therapeutic relationship, promoting a reliance on the therapy of the therapist. You know, but again, we're, we're off, we're, we are kind of in the miracle business. It's still miraculous if someone's had a 50 year problem and 12 sessions shifted. If 12 minutes shift it, is it more miraculous? Well, maybe it just looks more miraculous. I, I quite agree. And, and despite the fact, and I keep uh, almost reaffirming this to people on, on these podcasts, despite the fact that I'm the podcast is about rapid change, for me, rapid change is doing it as quick as it can be done. Yeah, sure. You know, And I think there are issues that need there needs to be some space and some time, maybe for them to go away and dig in and find other things for them to do. You know, And other people, it's going to be, you know, they can do something in 10 minutes, which they didn't think was possible, you know, and for others, exactly. it, ta- it takes a little longer. Yeah, um, I agree. I agree. It's it's but again, it's, it's not a race. And, and, and again, there is some value in repetition. There is some value if we look at the evidence in terms of post therapeutic support, ironing out some of those creases, going out reaffirming. Um, I don't do a lot of that, to be honest, but there is some value within it. You know, there's no, there's no doubt about that. So, yeah, it's not a race. Yeah. Sure. But I'm wondering, are there challenges when people have experienced change that seems miraculous? They've had a problem for a long time. They have a transformation. Are there challenges about their response to that? You know, for example, they can be sitting in the chair freaking out, absolutely freaking out at the thought of flying, for example. You know, flaming, full-on, 100% panic attack. You know, we do 20 minutes of stuff, and then I get them to think about it again. And they're going, huh, yeah, I'm, I'm mm-hmm. all right, I'm fine. But that's here. Has it re- would it really be like that? So I was wondering whether you've experienced that kind of thing and, and the challenges that 
I think that rapid change can lead to. Uh, yeah, I, I think there are some challenges. I don't know if they're exclusive to rapid change because even if you've done 20 sessions, you've still got to get back into the real world and agree that you're done and, and that it's done, if you like. The, the first kind of six, seven years of doing this, I'd say 70% of my clients came to quit smoking. Kind of a specialist in that. Maybe I've seen three and a half thousand people for that kind of thing. My dad's probably seen twenty thousand, and it was always very much a, a, a single session approach. You're going to leave here today as a non-smoker. That'll be a fantastic feeling, would it not? And if if we needed to do more work or a second session, then they could come back. There was no fee for that and that kind of thing. So it's very much that message. And I'm certain that thousands and thousands of those people, I know because it was a referral business, that thousands and thousands of those people quit right there and then, walked out, need gone, finished. If it's absolutely easy, if it's actually like someone's flicked a switch, the need is gone. They're not necessarily an evangelist, non-smoker, you know, berating everyone for doing it. It's just, it's just not there. They're not bothered. There's a trap. It's so easy. The need is gone. I haven't had one for a week. I'm out. I'm having a drink. I'll have a cigarette. You could even wake up the next day and think, oh, you know, I had a, I had a cigarette. Shouldn't have done that. And it may be the next time you have a drink that the thought pops up. Do you know what? I had one when I was drinking, and I haven't had one since. I'm going to smoke when I'm drinking. So it's, it can very easily build into a habit again, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, but closer related to the, you know, dealing with a phobia, for example... The best we can really do in the therapy room is this sud scale, is, is how bad is it when you think about it, which in itself is a flawed technique. If you ask someone how bad is it and then you, you know, bang some esoteric sounding symbols and ask them how bad is it, it will probably go down by 30, 40%. That's obviously a good thing if you're in the business of helping people feel better. Um, but it's a flaw in how we're testing our work, but it's kind of the best we've got because we haven't got the aeroplane outside. So robust testing, you know, ensuring that that testing is even more robust, pushing it into darker corners of what they imagined before. You know, not just you're on a plane, how are you feeling? It's turbulent. There's an announcement about the turbulence. The staff are sitting down. You know, how, how robustly are you going to kind of test your work? And secondly, test it in the field. You know, if you haven't spoken to Jürgen Rasmussen or read uh, his books, especially his first book, Provocative Hypnosis, it's it, not solely about this, but, but in one sense it is very much about testing your work in the real world, recognising that you can have your, your good subject your best subject in the chair and and yet those changes don't quite stick or take in the real world why is that and examining those kind of questions so there's there's the fact that it's easy there's the fact that you haven't necessarily tested it robustly enough and there's the fact that every other person out there is a hypnotherapist too they just don't call themselves that so they're going to have well-intentioned friends undermining them they're going to have experts undermining them and I'll give you a, an amusing example of that so a lady saw my father to quit smoking she did quit smoking three months later her asthma had also cleared up she hadn't mentioned that it's not what she was there for but she didn't need her inhaler she went for the, to the doctor about something else entirely and while there the doctor suggested oh I'll give you some prescription for your Ventolin whatever it's called 
And she said, no, I, I've quit smoking. My asthma's completely cleared up. And he kind of scratched his chin and said, I oh, know, I'll give you a prescription for some nicotine replacement patches for when the craving has come back. She was in my dad's office again within a week. Sometimes it's well-intentioned doctors and sometimes it's well-intentioned friends and sometimes it's a night out on the booze. <laughs> you know, but there are other people making suggestions. So sometimes you need to you know, work work around that kind of thing. And and just to say this, the other flaw in terms of rapid change and send them out there and I haven't heard from for a week is that we also assume that that's a lasting result. You know, most hypnotherapists, even very good ones, their record-keeping or their follow-up procedure is very poor. I'd certainly right. count myself in that number for, for a long period of time. In terms of what I dad did, kind of if they're not calling... I offered a guarantee, actually. It was completely transparent. Um, if they're not calling, then they must have got the change. It's a big assumption to be to be making and something that's easily remedied by having a program of following up with your clients. Where I kind of started with this, it was like, well, isn't, even, isn't that some kind of negative suggestion that I'll be seeing how you are in two weeks' time? So I kind of shied away from that, if I'm honest. It's interesting, and I, I, I totally agree about, uh, I think, for me, I want to know, if it worked, great, because I can look back and reflect and say, well, okay, what was it about that, you know, that I can begin to replicate what works versus, you know, if it's not successful, okay, great, how come? Yeah. What happened? Let, let's, um, so for me, it's not just about being open, uh, being able to talk to people who ring up and with honesty about stats. It's also, I, I wouldn't want to rob myself of the learning mechanism that feedback gives. Indeed. Uh, it's just one of these things that's e easily lost when you're doing this day in, day out. You know, I was very much a five-day-a-week, 25, 30 sessions a week. Uh, when I started, I don't work like that anymore. But um, I'd like to think I'd be open to the learning, but it was very much, I'm just going to keep yeah. going at this because it's, it's a tough thing, even if you are open to learning, to, to kind of distinguish between one session and another in terms of where did it turn. Absolutely. You know, I have, I have reasonably strong feelings about memory recovery, re regression type work based on the science, based on the evidence, based on the fact that it appears to be bad therapy. But I could point to hundreds of sessions I've done where it seemed from my view that that very brief dip into a first event and the uncoupling of the emotions that, that went with it is exactly when it turned. That's how it looked from, from my perspective of trying to learn. I'm not saying that was the case because I use a number of techniques in concert, but mm. maybe I was just interpreting the fact that, well, that's when they showed some emotion, or that's when we saw a tear, or that's when we saw a sigh of, and I'm interpreting that as, well, that's the thing, it, that's where it happened. Um, it's, it's very difficult, but I, so I certainly encourage people to keep records and to and to follow up without feeling that we're going to somehow torpedo our work by asking how is it going. Sure. Um, going back a second, because we, we started talking about you know uh, going back and, and, and looking and remembering past events, mm. I think a lot of people do have a belief around therapy that you know if you've had a traumatic experience, this is going to be, therapy is going to consist of reliving the trauma repeatedly. And um, w would you agree with that or would you make a distinction between reliving and recoding the past? I think, well, the idea that that's 
going to be what therapy is about is is still, in my opinion, just a legacy of of Freud's dominance for years. And even outside of psychoanalysis, the fact that it's true, <laughs> the vast majority of styles of therapy <laughs> do have you doing that. And many of the therapists who kind of think they're working in a different way still use memory recovery timeline type things as the backbone of their system. So there's some truth in the fact that, or, or, or at least that expectation that that could be the case, you know, that, that very often it will be lived up to. But whether the general population are thinking about reliving my trauma again and again, I don't know if they'll go that far. I think they're more interested in the sort of archaeological, I, I may uncover some information, uh, you know, a sort of dig around in there, or that they have something in mind, a painful moment that the last counsellor kind of dragged out of them, and that it's probably going to mean looking at that again. I think I think this puts a lot of people off therapy if they've done that kind of thing and it was unsuccessful because it was reasonably likely that it would be painful. And as you know, therapy doesn't need to be painful. So there, there, there is that. There is some kind of misconception. Uh, in a sense, there is lots of it still going on. Um, is it necessary? We know it isn't necessary. We know that memory recovery isn't necessary. And we know that memory recovery is, if you're behaving like memories are true, real things, you know, outside of the extreme end of a completely false memory, my view is that all memory, to a greater or lesser degree, is false. Your relationship to it is is a massive modulating factor, not just how you perceive it. So when I do that kind of thing, and many of the brief therapy tools we have, if you like, aim to recode the memory. What do we mean by recode? Well, we could just mean we scratch it, turn it around, make it different, whatever it is that you want to do. It could mean that we look at it from a, an observing self's perspective and, and realize who was in the right and who was in the wrong and have some you know, sense of, 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 of a new perspective on it. Um, it could be that we add content. If I'm, if I'm doing something like that, then typically you go and say what needed to be said that younger you it only takes 10 seconds you know tell them what they need to hear give them the comfort and the confidence they need give them a hug and say goodbye to them this will never bother you again things like that very very brief statements that just say just clear it up like you're the parent speaking to your own kid you know what needs to be said here it doesn't matter everything's going to be okay is that reliving past traumas? Not necessarily. Not because reliving kind of suggests you're going to have the feeling. Mm-hmm. And if you're stealthy with how you use these techniques, then there doesn't need to be any feeling, or, or at least very little. Um, or you can use the little there is to to just to transform, you know, that that uh, program, if you like. So yeah, there's something to it. I I'm certainly not afraid to do it, but I. I tend to refer to um, anything involving looking back, finding a memory, more as emergency techniques. Mm-hmm. Another thing which perhaps is a little sad to say is that sometimes because of client expectation about the nature of therapy, doing something brief where you look back and you uncover something almost seems to tick a box of, uh, now something's happening, now, now I'm doing therapy, now I've remembered. You know, I'd be loath to say it's the remembering that's therapeutic, but... These, these these techniques still still keep demanding a place 
in the toolkit. You know, it's it's. I keep trying to work them out, but they still sit there around the edge. And every now and again, I'll I'll do it. I, I quite uh, agree. I quite yeah. agree. And I think some people do come with particular expectations, and it's like, unless you tick the box off, they're not. They can't give themselves permission to have the change. Yeah, I don't know. I've just seen that happen almost by accident. You know, I've been. My, let's say I'm working with a phobia, and my normal techniques don't seem to be being as effective as I might hope them to. I do a regression, and bang! You can almost see the the, the bits of information connecting, and the kind of aha. You know, now I understand. But as we know, remembering doesn't guarantee that something's therapeutic understanding doesn't guarantee change in some sense it ju it just seems to help some people get again get some kind of traction get some distance mm. you know just to, to at least stop playing it out with the same theme music and 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 motifs they always have done and and, and as you know that can be enough you know, I'm, I'm, I don't want to sound down on NLP. I'm not, because at the center of what I do in therapy are many of those early techniques. But one thing is that many of those techniques, what they have in common is they just ask you to do it differently. You hadn't thought about it until now. You hadn't even conceived that you could do it differently. The techniques, however elaborate and meaningful they appear, are just permission to do it differently, differently enough that when that new differently becomes automatic, you have a different experience. And, and that moment is also key in therapy. The moment you spoke of when you're kind of testing, you know, for me, is, is very much a moment I'm building toward. And in that moment, when you have the baffled sort of, I'm not feeling it. I'm thinking about flying, I'm not feeling it. It's a moment to, to strike with more direct post-hypnotic suggestion. That's exactly how it's going to be. From today, whenever you try to remember what that was like, the more distant it will become. And just kind of hammer in and shore up and cement the change. It's a very definite moment in the course of the interaction I have with people. I am testing, but I don't really care whether it's a zero or a two. I care whether you are, are surprised almost at, at just your inability to do this. You know... You wouldn't be surprised if I said, look, I want you to have a fear of that clock. You know, how, where, where would you start if you wanted to have a fear of this clock? And people look like, what do you mean? It's ridiculous. I just, let's just try. Well, you know, what, 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 I can't, you know. It, it shows them that they have no idea how this thing was constructed and that they played no part in how it was constructed, you know. Someone said to me the other day, well, I'd get the clock and beat you over the head with it. I said, you could beat me over the head with the clock all day. I would not have a fear of the clock. <laughs> you know, I might have a fear of you, but I'm not going to have a fear of the clock. You couldn't, you couldn't even drill a phobia of something like that into my head. Again, part of the sort of undercurrent of what I'm trying to do, which has shifted in recent years, is rather than trying to give the person a sense of control, which seemed like an obvious and worthy thing to do, <laughs> yep. a, pre a preference now is just to point out how uninvolved you are, how uninvolved you were in setting up this response and how uninvolved you are when it goes off, you know. So mm. it's, 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 let's just look at this for what it is because we've been pinning a lot of, or you have been pinning a lot of value on it and writing a lot of story around it. And that story may have amounted to, I'm an anxious person.
But the truth is, something happened and there was a response. You know, and this association became automatic to the point you forgot that you ever imagined it. You just know that this happens in certain situations. Now you remember it was just your imagination. You can stop imagining that any time, can't you? You can imagine something else entirely, right? Those few words I've given you there are kind of fallen out of um, the uncovering of our model of hypnosis. But essentially basing your, your, the idea is that your personal reality in any given moment is a fiction. It's an automatically imagined fiction and it's generally pretty reliable. But it's a fiction nonetheless. It's paper thin. And your relationship to it in terms of a sense of control or a sense of it just happening to you, something you do or something that happens, is the important element of it. It's also the key thing that would make any interaction hypnotic or not, is this sense of involuntariness or automaticity. Mm-hmm. So what we found is just reminding people of that. It's obvious enough. I mean, that's why they're in therapy, is they're experiencing something as a happening. They can't stop it. They can't control it. Or, you know, their problems could be the, the, the mirror opposite of that. But just reminding people that this is the case... And giving them permission to stop doing that can be enough for things to change right there and then. Which, when you try and pick it apart, there's so little to it. But I find, again, that's why I, I mentioned that about NLP techniques, just being permission to do it differently. Because when you try to pick them apart, we can look at the submodalities and we can look at the perceptual positions and, and, and so on. But if you've done this for years, you'll all know that these things can be stripped away, that it can be easier than that, that there are times where it's literally a suggestion that you can change. In the same way, people have had conversations with a friend where something they've said, at some point, the person just kind of sat up and said, you know what, I know exactly what I'm going to do. And if we try to unpick it and bring it down to the technique or down to the process, which again is, is exactly how I got into this stuff, you know, what's the important bit? Or even, is that submodality change better than that submodality change? I actually think this just leads you down uh, an endless path of examination that doesn't necessarily point us back toward what is therapeutic about it. It's strange, because we want to learn our techniques and hone our techniques and, you know, deliver them in the best way. But sometimes I think it's easy to get caught in the detail, where... Actually, there are many other things being communicated in, let's say, take a fast phobia cure, even the original kind of effort. There are many things being communicated there outside of the fact that you're making this picture and sound different. They are suggestions for control. There are suggestions for completion. There are suggestions for creativity. There's there's all sorts of stuff that's kind of wrapped up in a technique like that um, that encourages collaboration, feedback. You know, so quite remember where I was going with this point or what the question even was. But, <laughs> but I, I mean, I think it, I think it's fascinating anyway, just just hearing your thoughts unravel about all of these things. And, and certainly what seems to be is that rather than getting very caught up, uh, you know, in the step by step stages or processes of a particular technique, it's actually stepping back and saying, well, look, what are the what are the essence behind these techniques? What's all wrapped up in these things that actually beginning to have an appreciation for? The, the therapeutic role that's embedded deeper than the techniques. Yeah, 
I mean, I use the same techniques over and over. I use many of the same words over and over. Um, but I still feel like it's a personal connection when I'm when I'm looking at that person and delivering these words. Mm-hmm. It's a strange thing um, about where the emphasis is or where the connection is made. But there are lots of interesting studies suggesting that this is the thing, or at least the thing that you should not ignore. You know, this this therapeutic alliance, this this agreement on goals and 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 having them not just having them and not just having smart goals but some mutual understanding of where it's going and some of the stepping stones the development of a bond that communicates i'm with you on this being settled in your own belief that change is not just possible but change is possible for this person and change is possible for this person and often very fast Regardless of what they say, regardless of what history served up, regardless what other experts have said, regardless, you know, of almost anything, you can still hold firm to that belief. And that can be not just communicated, but accepted. You know, it's 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 I, I, it's, it's not I'm saying it takes a lot to mean those words. But when you're first starting out, you're perhaps carrying some some hope and some faith in the technique. It's obvious, really. You've learned the technique. You've been told it works. And, and you try it and it and it worked once or it didn't work or whatever. And some people are very fortunate. I was fortunate in that whatever it was I was doing in those first few sessions worked. After three sessions, I was convinced. You know, and it, yeah, sure. Soon after that, I had one completely not work, not change. But I'd already seen that it can work. We can change. I barely even know what I'm doing. You know, I've got a few pieces of paper. Keep your eyes shut something's working so it, it alerted me if nothing else to our potential for change and the fact that it, what i'd read in those again early bandler grinder books that it can be easy it doesn't need to be painful you know and i'm talking about frogs into princes and using your brain for a change mm-hmm. that was the overwhelming message and that's why i still encourage people to read those books because it may well be that you you want to get into this you want to be a therapist but you're carrying some of the kind of older ideas about therapy and duration and the relationship and all that kind of stuff. Those books just shook me up and, and I'm just like, Oh really? Well, I'll give it a try. Um, you know, my dad was coming in with case after case that again, were just mind blowing. If I, if I even went through some of the early efforts he made that utterly convinced us that we were almost making people superhuman in terms of performance you know, they go from consistently eighth to tenth in a, in a group of, of professional athletes to just to just miles ahead yep. on a squash court, playing a professional once a month. You know, getting destroyed, perhaps getting a point to destroying that person to the point they smash their racket. One session. You know, you'll remember everything you've learned playing squash in the last twenty-five years when that door closes. You will be able to execute everything you've learned. Simple, direct suggestion, and time after time after time after time, seeing people just <laughs> transform. Now, is that transformation a long way off from where they're at now? It kind of seems that way. I, I'm not massively into the athletics, but I watched the hundred meters the other day, and it led to me watching Usain Bolt probably the last world championships or maybe longer where he ran 9.58 for a hundred meters. So, you know, even yeah, we get under 10 seconds. Yes. You know, in a championships, people often stretch themselves and they shave off a hundredth of a second. There's five hundredth of a second between place one and two. The other day, that guy got the U S record 
or maybe that was in maybe that was in when he got the world record. But nine point five eight. That's that's like sixty years of, of improvements right there in in a single race. Does that seem a world away from what someone else is going to do? Well, it does. Yeah, it seems a world away. And so does beating your personal best. And so does shaving a, another tenth of a second off of off of something. But then it happens. And I feel the same way often about people's problems. Like one of the one of the kind of useful um, references that any therapist can can check in with is. is the human givens list of basic human needs. So similar to kind of Maslow's stuff, but uh, less about self-actualization and more about us as an organism needing a good dose of a number of things and needing a good dose of all of those things. Some of which are obvious like food and water, some of which sound a bit fluffier, like a sense of control, a sense of purpose, a sense of meaning, feeling that we're good at something, feeling stretched, so one thing you can do in therapy is check in with your client and just see where the holes are. And often they're glaring. If you, if you say to people, what gives you a sense of purpose and meaning in your life? They look at you like, what do you mean? You know, my kids are at university. The house is paid for. What, what, what do you, nothing. <laughs> my life is sweet. What stretches you, you know, day to day, week to week? Not just physically, but, but what, what's, what's taxing? Where, how are you growing I don't know, I gave up all my hobbies. You know, there'd often be glaring holes. So one approach is to kind of recognize that these things are quite easily remedied by like, let's, let's find some things. Could be calling the elderly relative once a week. It could be visiting someone. It could be doing a day in a charity shop. It doesn't matter. It's, it's what would improve that score on that sense of purpose. And that's kind of, you know, one way of looking at it. The way I feel about it now is that all of these things actually are, again, closer than close between dissatisfaction or being unsatisfied and, and being satisfied. Think how quickly you may have transformed in your life when you just decided, no, this is, you were going to set off on this project. No, I know what I'm going to do. This means what am I going to do? And I know what I'm going to do. Completely converts a sense of purpose. Something's bothering you, worrying you, and you decide, I'm going to call them. I'm going to find out what's been said. You're still prepared for what may have been, you know, or, or unprepared for what may happen, what may be said. But your sense of control about it has gone from zero to 100. Mm. So, again, I feel that often these miraculous shifts we get in therapy are less about the recoding, although that's what it looks like when you're running those kind of techniques, and more are just these subtle but almost complete inner shifts with regard to our basic needs it's almost like nothing needs to change other than your attitude around it sometimes you know yes eat decent food drink some water socialize get feedback give love to people you know your life will be richer and better Mm. but how far away are we at any given moment from at least being on the path where we want to be well no distance really you know and a lot of this comes down to a decision even if you don't quite know how you're going to do it I'm going to climb to base camp one. What do you know about mountain climbing? Nothing. My friend's going. I'm going to, I'm going to do it. You know, you, you, you know you're going to do it. It's that kind of thing. Sometimes it's, it's really just a, a, a decision that allows people to change. A decision they didn't necessarily know they could make because mm-hmm. their experiencing of the problem has always been that it's, a hap- it's something that happens to them. It's something they're, they're not in control of. So can you give me um, maybe a couple of real examples client sessions where they come in one way they leave another and it's it's it seems miraculous it seems quite amazing 
that you could uh, share with us? Yeah, I could share many. Um, a guy came to see me, and I remember him because he announced himself as a skeptic. He said, I don't believe in this at all, but my friend quit smoking with you. I've got this weird problem. No one can help me. You know, you're my last resort, that kind of thing. None of which is music to my ears, but it turned out he responded very well. He had a problem where he'd lost a few teeth and he was having a plate made to have, I guess, four or six false teeth fitted at the front. When they went to put the putty or the mold in his mouth, he retched as if to be sick. And they struggled and struggled. Eventually they got it in, they made his teeth and he'd had them in his pocket for a year. He'd never even once managed to put them in his mouth. So I asked him where it started and he said, well, you know, in the dentist that day, we did a bunch of work. I did parts work. I did a, you know, some kind of kind of rewind type technique and more through curiosity than anything else. I decided to timeline and within one or two seconds of go back to the first event related to that feeling, he was bear in mind, this guy was about 68 when he came in, he was 13 years old in the doctor's, the doctor at a certain angle, sticking a spatula. And he said, oh, I've got, he's sticking a spatula down my throat. I feel sick. Now, it was, again, not that I'm encouraging the memory recovery bit, but it was crystal clear. And it was, it was com- it, it completely forgotten this moment until, or never remembered that moment until this point, never related it to his problem. But with the simplest of permission of go back and find it, he was there in a second. And again, I know what the science says about memory recovery under hypnosis. It doesn't improve our memory. It looks that way because you're, you're creating conditions for it. So he took, at the end of the session, he got out his teeth. He stuck them in his mouth. He said, yeah, it's strange. Yeah, they, they don't really feel that comfortable. <laughs> they don't fit. They've been in your pocket for a year. You know, get out of here. So things like that where because some of the theories, obviously, we have about phobias or it's certainly the kind of phobia that's learned through one trauma, one event. Mm-hmm. Um, this, seemed, this seemed to be evidence for that, if you like. It was like, wow, look at this first again, an, a, event. And I appreciate I'm, I'm interpreting that as being meaningful when it, could, it may not be. But if, any, if you've been doing this for a decent period of time and you're, you're comfortable facing anxieties and fears or helping people do that, you'll know that they just, you just don't need to live with those things. You, it, and it doesn't warrant our analysis. It didn't even really warrant my curiosity. You just don't need to live with those things. They can change. They're just a legacy. They're just a, a survival mechanism if we're going to go for those very, very specific, you know, kind of fears. So, and they can be changed. They can be reworked, recoded, recolored, retextured very easily. Another thing that still amazes me, and, and most of the stories I'll tell you now are, things i've seen my father do just because he does a lot more of this impromptu than i do um is pain control mm-hmm. i'll recount one example again people who know me well will have heard this but i've seen this many many times my dad freddie jackwin was doing a group smoking session it was you know in a, in a, in a hotel somewhere the chairs weren't that comfortable weren't that special and afterwards a couple of people said you know i'm not sure if i got into that i I'm actually in terrible pain. I struggle with these kind of chairs and couldn't really concentrate because of that. Do you do anything for pain? And my dad being my dad just said, stick around at the end and, and we'll spend a few minutes together. Another lady heard that said, can I stick around? I also suffer with this. And it was a kind of crumbling hip. She was on crutches. She had been for 11 years. Mm. 
my dad did a very brief induction that resulted in their arms being in the air. He gave them some sort of imagery to represent their pain and to go through, and their arm drifted down only as quickly as they were free of it. Both these people burst into tears, both completely free of pain. Does that mean they will be forever? I don't know. But there was no there was no audience. There was no frenzy being whipped up by an evangelist, uh, you know, pastor here. It was it was the effect was immediate. This lady said, do you think I can walk without my crutches? She got up. He said, I don't know. I'm not a doctor. She got up. She could. She walked out with them under her arm, you know, holding her kid's hand. Stuff like I, I've seen him do that on so many occasions where I've allowed my doubts to just think, well, no, you know, this guy is on the highest level of morphine. He's, he's kind of ankle is fused to his foot from that car accident it's just you know no and five minutes later i've seen that person without any pain and nothing you know in terms of the technique nothing that i couldn't share and you'd remember in like five or ten minutes you'd think where where is the technique you know it's 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 component pieces there that we can analyze the dissociation and it doesn't matter i it's miraculous i keep referring to this therapeutic alliance and and terms that all therapists are aware of and actually talk about rapport is one of them empathy is another genuineness is another and um i've always had a funny relationship with with, in fact i've always had a funny relationship with rapport um i don't really think it's there it's something we need to build i think if you're if you're genuine if if your intentions are good if you're listening and, and speaking, you know, with some purpose and meaning. It's more that it's there to be lost rather than something that we have to build. Empathy is another one. Are we actually trying to experience our client's world? Now, if I'm honest, if I ask myself, am I really doing that in therapy? I think the answer is no. I, I, I want to I understand in a sense. I, I, I've, I felt I haven't necessarily had that fear or that phobia, but I think I can understand what fear would feel like in the context of... I. I it's transferable in my imagination from, you know, that performance to, I don't know, speaking in front of people. Like, I think I can get it, but do I really want to experience their world? Well, I don't think I do. I certainly don't want to get lost in it. So empathy in a kind of practical sense then becomes about trying to communicate an understanding. And this could be done very easily with words. You know, I, I, I think I understand what you're feeling. You know, it makes you feel angry when you're spoken to that way. And, and looking for the, what comes next, rather than, I think you get angry at authority figures, which, which is analysis, which is examination. It's a very subtle difference in trying not to feel necessarily what they're feeling, but to, to show an understanding of those feelings. And the reason this has kind of become more than just a, a, a fluffy word for me is... It's down to the fact that from the, from the client's perspective, when the client comprehends that the therapist is trying to see the world the way they see it, they feel encouraged to clarify and increase their understanding. Yeah? As, as the therapist is gently grasping, being empathic, not knowing, not, ah, I know exactly what you need or my experience tells me, but genuinely, gently kind of grasping that experience, you're, you're actually teaching the client to be empathic with themselves, to, to, to grasp their experience in the same way the therapist is grasping it. Mm. And again, this, this kind of positive regard, for me, was very much colored by some of the NLP presuppositions. 
somewhere in there you have all the resources you need. You know, you you're doing the best with with the resources you think you have, and and those kind of things that that help kind of shape my attitude as a therapist early on. But if I if I examine them, if I write them down, do I really want to stand next to that? You have all the resources you need. Well, actually, more often than not, I find that's the case. But no, occasionally people just say, "No, I've never felt confident. I've never done that. Never experienced that." You know. The message I'm trying to give, and I know I've said this already, but I'll keep coming back to it, is I'm with you. Mm. That, that's, what, that, that's what I mean by genuineness and transparency. Not, not false hope, not little mantras of this is how it's going to be. Or, I'm with you on this. We're going to do this. The same attitude you'd take you know, if you had a kid and you knew everything was going to be okay. So if there are people out there curious to get involved with therapeutic intervention work or... Uh, you know, learn about different models of therapy. Um, what, what what would you recommend in terms of practicing, refining skills, books to read, people to learn from? <laughs> I get asked this question quite a lot, so I, I should just be able to reel off an answer. But um, I guess it comes down to this. First off, um, not just the hypnotherapy in, industry, but even more so the kind of NLP industry was beautifully described by one of our country's best performers as bloated it's become a training industry selling training courses proliferating ever more advanced techniques which makes it difficult to navigate if you're a beginner and especially if you're already a professional thinking do I really want to dabble with that stuff will it damage my credibility you know well there's so much good stuff that's easily integrated or used standalone or you know can be appropriate by a coach or a teacher or a nurse or a as well as a therapist that I just think it demands to be looked at when you're looking at it if you can get into some of the terms that are being used what I say to people about training is find someone who is a working therapist ideally or has vast experience using the stuff that they are teaching it sounds obvious I know but some of the courses out there are so busy trying to be comprehensive teach you everything there is to know about the different schools of thought about hypnotherapy or everything there is to know about NLP and language and, and so on, mm-hmm. that it, even if you complete the training, I, I often say to people, do you feel like you have a system? You know, when a client walks in, do you feel like you have, bang, you, you just get into mode that you have a systematic approach? And very often that's what people are lacking. So I, I try to encourage people to find a trainer or training where they're teaching stuff that they actually do in the real world and that they have a vast experience of doing that because, again, it's just the nature of the industry and the vast majority of people perhaps not needing to earn a full-time living from this or not managing to make a full-time living from it become trainers. And, and it's a self-regulated industry, so it's very easy to do that. And being able to do this stuff to some degree makes you feel like you're an expert because compared to, you know, people who don't know about this stuff that's how it kind of feels it feels like you've got the invisible cloak i mentioned earlier mm-hmm. and therefore you you know more than most people so you must be an expert so that's led to a very bloated industry um so you need to you need to choose your your trainer wisely and and the way to do it wisely is to ensure that they've got a practical track record with real world clients and that they're actually capable of teaching but some of the books that I thoroughly recommend people read, one is 
I've mentioned these guys already, but Human Givens, A New Approach to Emotional Health. It's a fantastic book. I've given away several copies because even if you've been doing this stuff for years, by, by chapter three, you'll have your mind blown. If you're considering hypnosis, then, again, it really depends on your mindset. If you want to find evidence for it, I mean, the fact that it's, it's approved to a degree by the British Medical Association, American Medical Association, but look at the Oxford Handbook of Hypnosis. Actually, look at the research. Look at what there is an evidence base for that's satisfactory. It's not as much as hypnotherapists would like, but it's still very impressive with regard to certain conditions and there is a lot of good research so look at the handbook of clinical hypnosis or the oxford handbook of hypnosis and it will give you a nice overview of the evidence with experts from completely with, with you know there's no consensus on what hypnosis is or why it works you'll have those experts interpreting that research so it gives you a, a broad view of things uh, there's a great book by lynn and kirsch evidence-based hypnotherapy it's a good starting point kind of assumes no knowledge issues mm-hmm. some of the more mythical ideas about hypnosis and gets into well, what's left you know what do we have evidence for and how can we present that anthony um if if people are listening uh, to the podcast and are keen to hear more from you um where should they go how should they get in touch okay well my personal website is anthonyjackwin.com and I've got a number of interviews that are available for free online if people want to kind of hear my thoughts on other things and one thing um, you could also check out that's free that kind of illustrates I call it the basic recipe if you like what I do most of the time in impromptu hypnosis settings by going to a channel on YouTube it's called How Two. it's a number two very cool isn't it how to <laughs> hypnotize with an S, how to hypnotize. Um, and there are about seven or eight lessons on there. Over half a million people have watched the inductions video. Um, but but what? only, only 17,000 have watched the wake-up video. So <laughs> my advice is watch all of them. Um, and you'll get an understanding of kind of, you know, what, what I'm about and what I do. There's so much stuff available. Um, this interview series will obviously be of value. It's important that people listen to practitioners that perhaps sit outside of of what they do i know that i became a better therapist once i started paying attention to stage hypnotists and i became a better stage hypnotist once i started figuring out how to do this anytime anywhere it kind of each aspect of it informs the other and and Mm. try not to be put off by the fact that people do perform and do silly things with it it's it's not the totality of what this is about. Try not to be put off by sort of hardened NLP practitioners who only ever speak in a funny way and no longer <laughs> connect. Um, and practice. It's, it's just a practical art. It's, it's so simple to get started. Read what you can, but get started as quickly as you can. Find practical resources and, and, and listen to some of the vast resources online these days. Absolutely great advice. And all of the book uh, references that you've mentioned over the course of the uh, the interview and all of the links that you've given um, will put uh, update, uh, upload with the episode details as well so that people who are listening now, if you go to the Rapid Change website where you go onto yeah. iTunes, they'll all be there so it'll be easy to get in touch with Anthony. Great. I hope you made a note of those books. I, I absolutely did. <laughs> absolutely did. And I've already ordered two of them. Excellent. Brilliant, brilliant. 
Anthony, thank okay. you so much for your time today, and um, I hope all the listeners uh, out there have found it as enjoyable and as interesting as I have. Thanks for the opportunity to chat, Howard. It was good fun. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, why not share it with anyone you think might be interested? And even head over to iTunes to give us a glowing review. You'll find more about what's coming up on our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash rapid change works. And of course, you'll find all the links related to this episode, plus those free five steps to getting your suggestions to sizzle over at rapidchange.works. <laughs>